How's it? COVID-19 has had some significant long-lasting impacts on our community, and it is especially hitting the nonprofit sector hard. While the news covers business closures, not much is being said about the nonprofits that are closing or merging due to changes in our funding landscape. Jennifer Oyer, a career nonprofiteer, is on a mission to help Hawaii nonprofits survive and thrive in the COVID era through her consulting practice. We chat about nonprofits, fast food, and good old Hilo. Welcome to On the Rock. What's up, Jen? Hey, Nate. How are you? I'm doing good. Okay. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. It's Monday. Um, so, I'm, I mean, it's hard to be junk on Mondays because, like, there's nothing to do on the weekend anyway. So how can you be too tired come Monday other than going back to work? But now with working at home, you're just working all the time. Are you working on the weekends too? Oh, yeah. I feel like I get more work done on the weekends than I do during the week because, you know, during the week is all is filled with like Zoom meetings. Right. And yeah. then I have no time to actually sit down and think. So I spend a lot of time just working on the weekends, which is fine. You That's know, not works fine. for me. Well, I mean, no, you need a break. You got to have like a break unless during the week you're kind of building in natural yeah breaks. that's the beauty about being a consultant is i can <laughs> you know wake up at 10 o'clock in the morning and oh, shit. you know 10 <laughs> do whatever i want okay well before schedule. we start just talking stories let's do simple protocols so name where you're from and i usually try to think of a question that would fit who i'm talking to but i'm actually actually we we aren't like old, old friends. We've known each other for a while, but not like we're, we hung out outside of work. So let's just keep it simple and we'll go to um, typical Hawaii. So what high school you went to? And then oh, I know that boring. answer and I have questions about that. So we can, we can okay. talk about that. <laughs> yeah, this is your time to ask me anything. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's the point, right? Um, okay, so... My name is Jennifer Asami Oyer. Um, my maiden name is He, so most people know me as Jen He. Um, I, I was born in Kumamoto, Japan, and I was adopted. And, um, but now I reside in Uwanu, and I love it. Well, actually, you know, I grew up in Manoa, so I probably most connect myself to Manoa. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, I live in Uwanu now. And um, I went to Hawaii Baptist Academy, go Eagles. And <laughs> yeah, I'm a proud alum. I know you are. You're featured in like their <laughs> alumni um, articles and all that stuff. I, I mean, so I have, I mean, you know this, I have um, some experience at HBA as far as just coaching basketball, which was, which was fun. It's a good school. Oh yeah, that's right. It's pretty tough though, right? Was it pretty tough academically? Mm -hmm. It seems like it was pretty tough. Oh, yeah. Well, for me, it was because I was not an academic student. I was a social butterfly. Wait, so what? I like, <laughs> I like barely graduated from HBA. Are you serious? I don't even know why they feature me as an alum. But um, yeah, so but, you know, that school, it really changed my life as far as 
you know, becoming a Christian and um, yes. just it kind of shaped like what I do professionally. So yeah, I loved my time at HBA. So, yeah. I mean, it might have been an academic school and people might have done a lot of homework, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Well, from the kids that I coached, it seemed like it was a pretty tough school. I mean, as far as like the workload and what the expectations were. Um, and it is a very um, strong Christian school. Um even though I'm not Christian, it it came up in like when I was taking the job, they just kind of mentioned that it is. So I should, you know, um, not swear. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was, but it was good. I think I think you know, in the four or five years I coached there, I maybe only swore, and this is like including practices when nobody's around. I probably only let out like a handful of of rips in the five years. <laughs> Like Good I must job. have been, yeah, it, it really forced me to control my mouth because it usually does. And I don't have that good um, uh, tongue control as far as my brain, my, the connection to my brain and my mouth is like super short. So as soon as I think it, it just flies out. So, yeah. <laughs> have you ever been to Japan? Yes, I have actually. Um, so in my sophomore year, I wanted to get some health information about my family. So um, my parents took me to the orphanage that I was from and um, in Kumamoto and it was life-changing for me. Um, you know, I never did, they, I wasn't allowed to get the health information, but just being back to the orphanage and seeing, meeting the nurses that took care of me while I was there um was uh yeah it was an amazing experience oh so, so the I nurses were still there yeah two of the nurses and um one I don't really know what his role was but you know kind of the guy that helped to coordinate the adoption um was there and the the um, people that ran the orphanage um were still there so they remembered my mom uh so it was a really special time yeah so I've been back. Uh, and have you gone back since, like as in your adulthood? Just for like vacation, um, but not back to the orphanage. No. Not back to Kumamoto. Mm -mm, I've no. never been to Kumamoto. I gotta, cause that's, where is that by? Is it like kind of? It's Southern Japan in Kyushu. Oh, it's on, in Kyushu. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm, trying to get to Kyushu well, originally I guess my my family's from Fukuoka so I've been meaning to try and get there and I'm supposed to be doing like research on my family but that kind of sometimes I you would think I have all this time with COVID but it seems like I don't I mean we were talking about that early do you find you're working more right now oh totally and so you know I think that's a good thing that you bring up about like work-life balance and taking some time on the weekend but yeah I feel like um and I know most people too have been working more um I don't know what it is like I I'm not sure but yeah I feel like I'm definitely working more than and I don't even know how that's possible than when I was <laughs> at the salvation but um yeah yeah I mean let's so let's talk about what you do um explain 
to the world, what exactly do you do? Okay, well, um, so I started a consulting, a boutique consulting practice um, a little over a year ago called Community Impact Advisors. And um, I started it with um, just this kind of, it was, it was a problem that was gnawing at me for a long time as, you know, I'm involved with the Association of Fundraising Professionals. So as I was doing a lot of speaking engagements for AFP and for the Salvation Army, I was going around to different, you know, parts of the country. And I think the main thing that stood out to me was that most nonprofits do not know the fundamentals of fundraising. And that to me leads to a lot of like sustainability issues and organizational development issues. And so I thought, you know, I really feel like I can utilize my skills to better serve the community. Um, and especially in Hawaii too, like I just felt like my connection is to Hawaii, um, to where I grew up and what can I do to better the community that I live and work in. So I started Community Impact Advisors and um, I advise nonprofits on, you know, fundamentals of fundraising, but really it was a desire to transform nonprofits, you know, to be leaders in like innovation and progressive and critical thinking and collaboration. So that's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> How did you get started in nonprofit? I mean, was that always something you wanted to do or coming out of college, it just sort of happened? Um, I think, yeah, it, it just kind of happened. I, I needed a job. So actually my first job was at UA, um, at HBA and um, I graduated from UH and then I called my, um, my former boss who was the development director at HBA. At, uh, do you know Lance Kakimoto? Does that name no, sound familiar? I don't know who oh. that is. So anyway, he, um, I called him and I said, oh, you know, I just graduated from UH and I need a job. Do you have anything? And he's like, well, actually, um, I'm starting a, I want to start an alumni program. Would you be interested in, you know, doing that? So I was like, yeah, that'd be awesome. I can like travel, you know, across the country and like meet with alums. Um, so I did that for about four years and it was awesome because I got to really learn what philanthropy was you know it's like I was always amazed at how many alums wanted to donate money to make HBA a better school mm -hmm. and to give money to support um, students with financial aid and scholarships so I was like man that's super awesome and so I that's kind of where my love and my passion for philanthropy started um, so that was my first job. And then I went to UH foundation and I worked at the law school and, and did fundraising there. So my entire professional career has been in fundraising. And, you know, it's talking about alumni, how do you build that? Because I think just me personally being alumni of, uh, UNLV, Whenever I see the 702 area code pop up on my phone, I know they're calling. I know it's them. 
Because if not, I have that person in my phone book. So I know it's you and LV. And I know they're probably asking me for a donation, which sometimes I give, sometimes I don't. I try to do once a year. But how do you build that? I mean, like as far as alumni, I mean, this is self-serving because my day job too, I have these questions. But like, what do you feel like alumni want as far as, you know, their connection to the, their old establishment or their old school? Yeah. Well, I think it's like anything. Um, I think fundraising, really the fundamental piece of it is building relationships, right? And, um, you know, you can't ask anyone to do anything really, or it's really hard to get someone to do something for you if you don't have a relationship with them in the first place. So, you know, I feel like fundraising is all about building relationships and connecting the donor's passion to the needs of the organization. And before you can even have that privilege of asking someone for money, you have to know what they're passionate about. You have to know um, details about their life, right? And, um, get to know them and become friends with them and uh, learn what gets them excited. So I think that's what the key element is to fundraising, you know, building relationships, listening, and then also a lot of it is empathy too, right? Being able to connect with someone on a deeper level so that they can then um, utilize their resources to transform you know, their community. So now obviously you switched you switched to this job or you created your your boutique firm pre-COVID, pre-pandemic. Um but um since the pandemic hit, it really kinda shifted the landscape, I think, of what not necessarily what nonprofits need to do, but it really turned the focus on on nonprofits to me. Um, a lot of a lot of um, deficiencies of services that you know people kind of get are fulfilled by nonprofits. So, what do you think kind of initially happened when the shutdown happened, and then what do you see right now? Now that we're about four or five months into the shutdown, as far as the nonprofit landscape. Hmm. Uh. Gosh, you know, it's hard to believe that it's been like, what, five months or something like five, that? Five, yeah, um, five or six. I, I remember like beginning, it's kind of, yeah, beginning of March, um, I was talking with my friend who does organizational development and she's like, you know, I really think that we need to start thinking seriously about how COVID is going to impact nonprofits and our, our business. And I was like, uh, it's not going to be a big deal. And she's like, no, I'm serious. We need to start thinking about like, how are we going to support our community? So, um, that's when I developed that first webinar that I did on fundraising with Aloha. And, um, and I can't believe that's like, that was in March, but I feel like you know, fundraising is a marathon. It's not a race, right? And when you run a marathon, you need to stick to the best practices. 
and, you know, like best practices, meaning like your breathing, you know, you're concentrating on your breathing for a marathon, you're concentrating on staying hydrated, you're arming yourself with the right tools, like, you know, your dress, you're wearing the appropriate attire, making sure that you're, you're wearing the right shoes. So I think the same thing goes for nonprofits, you know, it's a marathon, it's not a race. And I think because most nonprofits don't know the best practices, they were hit like a ton, a ton of bricks. Like it was like an awakening for them. Like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And the nonprofits that have been able to succeed during these past five months and are coming out even stronger are the ones that have already been implementing a lot of these best practices in fundraising. You know, they have a diverse stream of revenue. They're, they weren't just relying on um, galas and special events, you know. So um, that to me is, you know, I think how nonprofits can come out at the end. You know, if they were if they are an organization that was just relying on special events and gala revenue, it's, it's okay, but, and we have time to work on it and change it and focus on diversity um, because really nonprofits, we have to think of it as an ecosystem, right? Um, in order for long-term success, it's a whole ecosystem of, um, you know, Exec working with the executive director and um, staff, working with your boards, create being creative in fundraising and you know diverse diversifying your revenue. So um, that's how I think you know nonprofits are going to survive is um, think of thinking of it holistically. Sure, their program. Yeah. And I think for me personally, um, given my experience um yeah the, you know being having one source of income has been even though i haven't fully impl implemented a lot of the changes it's already been somewhat successful to kind of try and get different sources so versus event income event income is kind of old school like people kind of just think of like the golf tournaments or the dinners and and that's the way they make money but for for nonprofits raise money i should say but it takes a lot of time and it's a lot of stress on the staff um a lot of hidden costs um but yeah i think i think it's it's a lesson that me personally i kind of knew but i wish i had more time pre-covid to have like implemented a lot of the changes because i think covid's making it a lot um initially covid made it a lot tougher i think the shift and you can correct me if i'm wrong but i think a lot of the funding shift initially went toward um immediate response so yeah health providers food um basic need kind of um, organizations I feel yeah. like it's starting to shift out of that now toward more long-term recovery. Are you seeing that too? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I think, I think funders are 
I mean, there's still a lot of work that can be done in working with funders um, and educating them on what the needs are for nonprofit organizations. And, um, but I feel like, you know, a lot of them have, um, or are realizing that in order to create change for nonprofits, like, you know, when you write a grant, right, one of the questions a lot of funders ask is, how are you, how are you folks going to be sustainable, right? After our funding is completed, you know, how are you folks going to, and to me, that was always such a, I don't know, it was such a, like, stupid question, like, and to me, sustainability comes from, like, um, general operating, you know, we need help with general operating expenses, because in order for us to like continue doing all of this stuff, we need staffing, we need, you know, all of just general resources. And then, you know, um, then we can perform and do um, provide our outputs and all of that kind of stuff. And um, I don't know, I just feel like a lot can be done with with funders and I can go down a rabbit hole on that, but. Oh, let's go down the rabbit hole because it's, because I agree. <laughs> no, I agree. Um, you know, it, it's tough when you, you're trying to explain to a funder that the biggest cost any nonprofit's gonna have is staff. And when they come in hard and fast and say like, we don't wanna pay for staff. It's like, well, who who's gonna execute the program? You know, like you can't. You can't, you need to be able to include the cost of payroll um, and, exactly. and be able to operate. Yeah. And, you know, as nonprofits, my personal thing is I want to hire, I always, no matter what I do, I want to hire the best available people I can. But if I can't raise funds, especially from funders, either through grants or through, um, not really restricted, but they have preferences on their on their uh, funding, and they don't want to do staff salaries. I'm like, well, I, how am I gonna compete talent wise? You know, to be able to bring in the best people to to kind of do that. I mean, mm-hmm. so let's go down the rabbit hole. What are your thoughts on like some of the the ways funders can change? I think I think funders need to hear it too, right? Not just nonprofits. Yeah, well, you know, one of the jobs, like one of my, I think, passions really is to not just like, I want to, I want to be the best coach to nonprofits, I want them to, I want to skill up our fundraisers and our fundraising community so that they know the right questions to ask. Because I feel like a lot of times, nonprofits feel subject to um, doing whatever funders tell them to do. You know, like they funders say, we have $20,000, but you have to only use it for this specific innovative program. And you're thinking, well, we don't really do that. (laughs) And, but we really want the $20,000. And so you end up bending over backwards and spending more than $20,000 on a program. And then what, you know, it goes away after a year and then you possibly might not get the funding again because it didn't survive or didn't have the right 
um, ROI or the right outputs or the, you know, the numbers that they were looking for. Sure. And to me, that's so crazy, you know, that funders were asking us to do stuff like that. And to me, I feel like the only way we can change is if we know the right questions to ask and know, um, not just simply, I'm not just simply providing information, I'm actually telling them or showing them, look, these are the questions that you should be asking funders. These how, this is how we as organizations can hold funders and boards accountable, right? Um, talking about ROI and um, sustainability and telling them that if you want us to provide a stellar program, you need to fund operate general operating, mm -hmm. like multi-year, you know, operating. That's how we're going to create sustainability. Um, and that's what leads to change, um, I think, in communities. So I don't know. I <laughs> no, that's friend fine. with a lot of funders, but you know, I, I feel like it is our it's our job to educate them on what exactly our issues are yeah. so that we can work with them, you know, collaboratively to start making change. And I, I feel like COVID has kind of done that um, in some ways. Um, funders are being much more flexible in how monies are being used, right? Mm. Um, they're not requiring reporting as much. Yeah. Um, so I feel like, you know, maybe the shift has started to turn a little bit. So it's our job as nonprofit professionals to continue to educate that and continue that conversation with them. Even though they're, they are shifting, I, as, a, as a nonprofit person myself, I still feel like we still need to be super diligent in our reporting, even if they may not be asking for it, because... You know, I don't, yeah, I just don't want myself to get lazy and be like, well, I don't have to submit a report, so I'm not going to track those metrics anymore. Um, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that they might be shifting. I feel like from what I've seen, I, I feel like funders are a little more flexible, um, especially those that had funding tied to projects that got interrupted midstream. Um, either mm -hmm. extending, but but the problem is they may not be um, inputting a lot more extra cash. They're just saying, "Well, we'll give you a longer a longer timeline, a no cash extension," which which is great. But then it still makes us have to fundraise. Do you see yeah. um, funders now that COVID hit? We're starting to see some economic impact, which obviously impacts. I feel impacts, or you can correct me if I'm wrong, if it doesn't, but impacts um, philanthropic giving, um, especially from a corporate side. How do you think um, we're going to, how, how is that going to affect the nonprofit sector, especially in Hawaii? Um, well, you know, I don't, I, I feel like just in general, we don't know what fundraising is going to look like um, at the end of 2020 and even going into 2021. I mean, you know, there, there are some reports that have come out saying that fundraising is steady. 
some reports have said that fundraising is down tremendously. Um, but I think that, oh, you know, and we talked about this too, like, you know, after the 2008 recession, yeah, giving went down in 2009, but the following year in 2010, it was back up again, right? And the trend has been going up every single year incrementally. So there may possibly be a dip um, in 2021, um, but I think that, and I know for sure that, again, organizations that have stuck to the fundamentals are the ones that are gonna succeed. And, um, it's the relationships again. So, you know, a lot of we, a lot of board members that have said, you know, do not fundraise. Absolutely, it's a bad idea. It's being totally insensitive to the donors. You know, we cannot make assumptions for our donors. And the best thing that we can do is reach out to them and tell them what we're up to as an organization and then ask if you know, invite them to partner with us and ask them for their support if they are able to. And most nonprofits are seeing that donors are stepping up, the individual donors are stepping up uh, to support um, because that passion doesn't go away. Yeah. So they may not be giving as large gifts, but they are still giving. So, you know, again, I think it just goes back to the fundamentals and also building that relationship with the individual donors. Um, and that's the other thing too, you know, giving comes from the, the last giving report, giving USA report, 68% um, of giving in the US came from individual donors. And you add 7% to that from the bequest. So the majority of giving comes from individuals, um, you know, not from foundations, not from um, corporations. So organizations should be spending their time developing these individual relationships um, and cultivating and stewarding those individual donors. Yeah, it's, um, I, I think that's where, for me, it's trying to figure out how to crack that nut, especially for my org, because we have such a long history. We've impacted I think a lot of lives, but at the same time, they were all kids at the time. So we don't have their names. <laughs> so, so it's kind of like one of those things, like how do you find them unless they self-identify, um, which is another, another, you know, complete different issue. Do you, um, as far as a nonprofit landscape, we hear about, we hear a lot about um, businesses closing. Obviously those things are hitting the paper you know, Chamber of Commerce of Hawaii is doing, um, you know, a pretty good job of trying to advocate for the businesses. But mm -hmm. I feel an unheard story is the closures or the, you know, closures of nonprofits. Ha have there been a bunch? Have you been seeing a lot of nonprofits kind of go away because they cannot sustain themselves? Yeah, I have, unfortunately. And um, or, you know, I have seen a couple of nonprofits um, merging with other nonprofits, you know, if they have like like-minded um, mission or program services. Um, so, you know, that's 
that's always disappointing to hear. But, you know, after the 2008 recession, I think it was like 5% of nonprofits folded Mm. or merged. So we could probably see something similar to that here in Hawaii. Um, But again, I think that there's nothing better for nonprofits to be doing now than to be reaching out to their constituents and reaching out to their donors and then picking up the phone and just talking to people, you know, and connecting with them. I think before COVID, we were so, we got so used to just emailing and very like, you know, I don't know, kind of like at an arm's length communicating with our donors. Um, So it's been really interesting to see a lot of um, executive directors trying to like change and adapt and be nimble and pivot to picking up the phone and calling like old school and talking story and just listening to their donors Mm -hmm. um, instead of just sending off a random email. So, yeah. But that's hard. It takes a lot of time and a it lot of energy time to build relationships. Yes, yes. I'm well. I'm just talking from my point of view. I'm like, oh man, that's like a lot of time and energy to get that done. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of you know, I I can be I can be kind of lazy sometimes. But <laughs> do you do you find it? Um, are you much happier running your own business now? Um, yeah, I mean, well, like I said, I can like wake up whenever I want and I'm not a morning person. So obviously if um, you said 10 o'clock, if you can wake up at 10 (laughs) o'clock, that's pretty much skipping the whole morning. You're going right into midday at that point. Oh my gosh. Sometimes like I'll wake up and my husband has already eaten lunch and he'd be like, good morning. (laughs) (laughs) I had lunch already. (laughs) Wait. (laughs) is that does it just mean that your husband eats early or are you waking up no. like at lunch yeah like at lunchtime but anyway <laughs> that's another that's another story but oh we can um, talk about that this is not a purely professional podcast i mean i'm not a i'm a night owl so i stay up like really late but yeah i'm i think i'm just quality of life is better for me um i do miss the team dynamic so um, you know, and being able to like bounce ideas off of, you know, my colleagues. Um, so I do that with my clients that I work with and try and integrate as much as possible. Um, but yeah, I really do. I feel like my calling now in this season of my life is really to serve nonprofits here in Hawaii and figure out how, um, you know, we can work together and um, to create a stronger, not just a stronger organization for them, but just a stronger um, sense of community um, here in Hawaii. So yeah, I, I feel like I am happier and I do have way more time to, you know, like focus on myself and like, um, do the things that I never really had a chance to do. I didn't take a vacation for like five years. Really? When I was work- yeah, when I was working at the Salvation Army, 
I didn't take a vacation for five years. I got married on a Friday and then um, had the weekend and then went back uh, and I took off Monday, but then I went back to work on Tuesday. That's crazy. I know it's crazy. So, you know, after I, after I left, um, I really had some time to just kind of be still and um, yeah, do the things that I always wanted to do. I'm a, I'm a proponent of like, when I, when I manage people, I encourage them to take an annual vacation. I mean, for me, it serves a couple purposes, right? Like it keeps them sane. You know, it, it also from a business standpoint, we don't accrue the liability of their vacation time. (laughs) So it looks a little better on the balance book, you know, the balance sheet. It's like, you're not accruing, you're not accruing all this um, vacation time as a liability. So, but I feel like for me, generally speaking, like I gotta take those, even if it's like a one week, five day vacation, I gotta take like a, a time off and I can't do it at home. That's the hard part with this whole COVID thing. Cause I think talking about working 24, like all day is probably cause your desk is you know, super accessible to you, right? Like on the weekend, yeah. you can just wake up, turn on your computer, and then you you end up starting to answer emails. Then next thing you do, you're working on something. It's too easy versus having an yeah. office. You can kind of like not go into the office, right? Yeah, I think that's definitely one of my biggest regrets um, when I was working at or just in an organization you know and I think that that you don't really realize how that impacts your your employees or your team too you know like they they see you not going on vacation so they feel like they they can't go on vacation yeah and they have to like put in the same amount of time as you do yeah and you know I never wanted to create that kind of unhealthy work environment um and i you know looking back that's if i'm not being if i'm not taking care of myself how can i take care of others right yeah um so yeah that definitely is one of my biggest regrets yeah because they'll model i mean you always ask them to model you know your your effort i guess i mean not explicitly asking them but you know, I think you're trying to show them like, okay, if I'm, if I'm blasting, if I'm pounding away at stuff, hopefully you will too. <clears throat> but by not taking vacation, you're also telling them like, you shouldn't take any breaks. Right. So, I mean, gosh, who knows like what they thought of me, like <laughs> dragon lady or whatever, but <laughs> well, we should yeah, ask. Do... So when this, when this, I, I know airs, what they thought of me. <laughs> tell them, leave some comments and they can be like, oh, Jenna's awesome. She's the most awesome boss ever. (laughs) Oh my God. She was a witch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I I highly doubt they'll say that. I mean, (laughs) it's not, it's not like that. I have a weird, well, it's not a weird question. It's a related question. I think it's not weird actually, but I'm from Hilo. So I look at like my personal mission is sort of like yours. It's always been to improve Hawaii. However, you know, through our, professional efforts, whether it's private sector, nonprofit. Um, but for me, that 
definitely explicitly includes the Big Island. Um, I think one of the things, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a lot of time funding is available for, or it's very Oahu centric. Mm. Um, and you get pockets here on different islands. There are certain foundations that will only give for projects on that island. But how do we start framing some of these conversations to to be inclusive of neighbor islands? Um, so when we're talking to funders, even though we're based, maybe my org is based out of Oahu, but I'm also kind of trying to portray and also spending money on different islands. What's the, yeah. I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and, you know, what's also interesting is that I feel like fundraising uh, is done differently on every island. Mm. And also, I feel like done differently between Hilo and Kona, mm. you know, like from West Side and East Side. Oh, it's they're like completely two- different worlds. I know, totally, totally. Um, you know, I, I feel like that's really where um, advocates come in for you. And, um, you know, I, when I was working at the army, I spent a lot of time just building relationships with people on different islands and learning how they do business there and learning the right people to, um, to talk to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel like, that's where, that's when funding really comes in is when you can find those strong advocates for you and um, like people to serve as ambassadors for your organization. Um, Because, you know, I think about like, um, like some of my board members um, that were, um, on Hawaii Island, I feel like they were so much more productive in raising money than the ones that were on Oahu. Mm, and, and they, and the reason why is because they knew they appreciated, you know, the time that, um, we were spending with one another, getting to know each other. And then, they felt comfortable enough to say, hey, you know, I actually know someone on Oahu that has funding that can support um, the Salvation Army and direct it to Hilo. Gotcha. So, you know, I feel like that's really where we should be focusing our time. Again, it's all about building relationships. And I mean, I think you're so good at that and um, (laughs) you know the right people you know so many people so it's just a matter of like talking to them right continuing to educate them about what your needs are and how you can connect how you can like be that dot connector to make Hawaii a better place I Um, I appreciate that vote of confidence I wish I could I could totally 100% agree with that I do know a lot of people I don't know if I'm good at it I mean my next question was gonna be is that skill of of fundraising a muscle memory kind of thing where if it's just amount of reps right taking reps knowing what questions to kind of i mean have it you got to have an approach right but then 
doing that approach over and over and getting over the the um initial lack of success to the point where you're more polished to the point where you're starting to now have more success mm. well you know i would say i mean every fundraiser is gonna get like for every for every yes you're gonna get 10 no's of course and you have to just kind of be used to it but i always look back at the no's like the people that told me no it was always because i felt like like I didn't do a good job in figuring out the right time to ask. Like it was never the right time or I was like trying to push it, you know, and um, I didn't really learn exactly what they were super passionate about. Um, so I, I guess, yeah, I mean, it takes practice to feel comfortable to make an ask, but really by the time you get to the point where you do make an ask for a gift, they've already told you, look, like I want to make a gift. This is what I'm thinking. Um, help me get it done basically. Sure. Um, but again, I think I would never, I wouldn't be a successful fundraiser if it wasn't for all of the relationships um, that I've built. Yeah. And always going into it too with the thought of I'm not making friends with them personally. I'm making friends with them um, on behalf of the organization, right? I'm raising this money on behalf of, and I think that's what a lot of young fundraisers make. Like that's a mistake that they make is they think that they have to be friends with these donors, um, like personal friends and mm. Yeah, some of them are personal friends now for me, but it didn't start off that way. Um, I'm always constantly, I'm serving as an ambassador for the organization and I'm trying to raise money for that specific organization. So that's interesting. Um, I think that's probably a mistake I make once in a while. Um, well, not the feeling like I got to be their friend, but I think sometimes a lot of the people I'm asking are already sort of in my network. So mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of how do you switch the conversation from us just talking stories to me actually asking on behalf of the, com of the organization, like we need some support or can you support or whatever? I mean, for me personally, I come from a sales background I mean, I've done sales, I've run some sales teams and I got to be honest, fundraising is like, like a completely different sales proposition. I could sell, I could sell. Yeah, yeah, it's different. I could sell whatever to whoever, like I, I was never uncomfortable and taking the nose was never a problem, but I feel like with nonprofit, it's, um, it's harder for me. It's a different, it's a different proposition. And then also, I maybe because it's 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 mission related, the no stings a little more, because you sure. kind of feel like they're saying no to the mission, and you're like, why would you say no to the mission? You're you're a you're an asshole, you know. But it's not that's not the case, right? That's they're not trying to be an asshole. Or they're not an asshole. It's just the timing might be wrong, or I'm not asking the right questions. But yeah. before yeah. when I was just selling widgets. If I if they say no, I'm like, well, fuck. They just don't want 
what I'm selling, which is fine, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's fundraising, I think, is a really personal thing, right? I mean, fine, when you think about it, like your resources are super personal to you, right? Yeah. So having someone come in and ask you for that is a really like intimate thing. And yeah, that's why it takes, you know, so long to build these relationships with major donors, because you're really trying to dive deep into their world and learn about what makes them tick. And it's like this journey that you're going on together, right? Yeah. On behalf of the organization. So yeah, I think it's totally like, everyone says, Oh my gosh, I don't know how you can do it. It's like sales. And I'm like, it's actually not. It's it's different. It's a relationship building thing. And we're really trying to like, one of my favorite quotes is fundraising is the gentle art of teaching the joy of giving. And so we're really uh, teaching and journeying with these donors on like connecting them to their passion, right. And finding that joy, what makes them super happy. Um, And that's a real personal thing. And then it's an intimate thing. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of disagree with the whole it not being sales. It's sales. It's just it's just a little different. Like you're not, you can't just try and close somebody, right? And you're not trying to. I think with my general sales background, you propose something, they accept the the proposal, they give you funds or they give you money but you're also providing something goods or services in exchange for that versus like nonprofit. You're asking them for funds, but there's no exchange. There's no transaction, right? Like they're, they, you ha- they have to trust, which is where I think your personal part comes in very strong and makes sense. Cause they have to trust that your org can deliver on the outputs and the uh, impact to the community that your you're kind of proposing so they're not getting a direct product or service in return so it's a lot more trust mm-hmm. needing to be built yeah. yeah well yeah i think i think certain elements of fundraising are transactional like uh direct mail and mm. annual giving right but yeah. i think the transformational gifts comes from to me i don't see myself as a salesperson when it comes to like large gifts okay um because it's taken a long time for me to build that relationship with them. Sure. Um, so, yeah. I yeah. was in sales too for a really long time and Really? Yeah. And I guess it's kind of Where were you where were you doing? Um, well, so I worked at Ann Taylor for a really long time. Okay. Like almost 10 years. Um, I was going to say. And it's so sad <laughs> that both both are closing both stores are closing you, you look like you are have that ann taylor ish style <laughs> <laughs> um thanks yeah. hey, no it's a compliment it's very you know you're always um, well put together like i look like shit thanks. most of the time like i have a t-shirt on and i didn't brush my hair this morning and then you're like looking like you're you had a bunch of in-person meetings, but they're all probably Zoom meetings. <laughs> uh, good thing this is a podcast because my hair is a little off today. But is it? Yeah. It so I, I worked at I worked at Ann Taylor, and I also my first job was at McDonald's. I worked at McDonald's for nice, like 
three years or something. That was the best job I've ever had. How old were you when you worked at McDonald's? I was 15. Oh, nice. So I had to wear like a different color hat because I was like super young and I couldn't go by the fryer. Um, So I worked at McDonald's. Oh, I did waitressing for five years at Zippy's. Okay. Um, So if uh, Ito is listening... Um, yeah, that was, that was a fun job too. Yeah. I got to get, I got to get Ito on, uh, Daniel Ito. I got to get him on one of these days. I'm sure he's been busy. Um, cause I was interfacing with them quite a bit leading up to, um, COVID. And then, um, because we, they were supporting, um, my org, but I haven't oh, really awesome. talked to him. Yeah. Uh, well, they had to cut the promotion short because it was the month that we shut down. So uh, it was kind of a bummer, but I understood. I mean, I understand. And I'm I'm guessing they're a little more stable now. But yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's good. I mean, I can kind of tell that you had your first job early. I had my first job when I was 14, I think. First tax paying job. But I, I felt it was valuable to have a job when I was in high school. I don't know. Totally. It taught me yeah. a lot. What was yeah, the, what was your, like discipline. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was the what was your favorite McDonald's story working there? <laughs> um so I was I always did drive through when I worked at McDonald's. I don't know why, probably because I was the only one that could speak English well. <laughs> Can I say that? <laughs> well, I mean, okay. you already did. Oh, I said <laughs> so, yeah. um, you're articulate. So, yes, we get that. <laughs> That's fine. So I, I was always in drive-through and um, I don't know why, but the my biggest pet peeve was when people would order a hamburger or a cheeseburger with no cheese. So I'd be like, you mean... <laughs> hamburger and they'd be like no I want a cheeseburger with no cheese and I'm like okay whatever so then apparently like one time I like was holding down the you know the microphone that you can hear them in yeah. the drive through well I didn't shut it off and I was like what the fuck <laughs> I was like it's a freaking hamburger, hamburger. <laughs> and then so when he drove when he drove in it was one of my teachers that I didn't recognize his voice when he was in the drive-thru. <laughs> oh, this is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was my, that's like the one story that I remember. How, I mean, how often did that happen? A cheeseburger with no cheese? A lot of people. It was really weird. Like, I don't know. It just reminds, like- reminds me of the um, Raps Hawaii skit. You know, the room service one. Oh, you want the <laughs> hamburger with cheese or the cheeseburger? <laughs> so it yeah, happened quite often. Yeah, I would say it happened often. Or like and often enough where I used to get irritated. Do you do you still eat McDonald's? Or do you even eat I, McDonald's? I do. But you know, I mean, that's like one of my down, like my vices is like French fries and dipping it in barbecue sauce (laughs) (laughs) oh no that's good that's good i mean that's tasty i can see that i mean yeah mcdonald's french fries is is a 
pretty tough thing to beat when it's fresh you know it's still hot and crispy yeah when it's fresh but you know one place that i don't eat that i used to work at is taco bell oh yeah. i worked you there worked at for taco like, bell too yeah i worked there for a couple of years and um in college after i moved back from hilo actually and um yeah i cannot bring myself to eat taco bell anymore <laughs> is it that bad oh no i love well i haven't i haven't had taco bell Oh, it's got to be a couple of years, but I love Taco Bell. It's so good. Yeah, you I, don't know if, like, <laughs> I don't know if someone could get me to eat Taco Bell. Oh, I keep forgetting you went to Hilo, yeah, for school. Yep, I went to UH Hilo. You went, how many years were you there? Just one. And then I would have stayed like my entire time, but my parents made me come home because I was not studying. I was like having so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> it, that's what happens when when the townies go to Hilo. They learn about like fishing and camping and partying. Oh my gosh, we used to go to Kapoho like every single weekend and just like cruise and swim and i don't know it's just so much fun like i have so many great memories <laughs> like in hilo no there are a ton and some cloudy memories too oh, yeah, but... yeah, yeah yeah those happen in hilo too no but i can i you're not alone a ton of especially oahu kids that went to uh hilo a lot of them didn't make it to the end because like it's it's too relaxed and it's a different lifestyle like you can go beach every weekend you know couple holes great you probably had somebody's house somebody had a yeah. beach house or whatever and you're just staying at the house and they can yeah. swim and hang out and cook out all weekend long and then next thing you know it's it's sunday night and you didn't do any of your homework exactly exactly yeah, no. plenty stories and, like that and both of my parents like they worked for the fbi right so um they used to have their friends um, in the police department come and check up on me on, <laughs> oh, that's like, throughout the week to make sure that I was like in my dorm room or like just to like stop by and say hi, see how I was doing. <laughs> oh, that's spooky, man. Uh, I mean, Hilo, it, it's, it's weird because it's a very, uh, well, at least when you were there, when I grew up there, it was a real safe place to be i mean like there's always crime but you know people knew each other you know you can hang out it's there's not a lot of ways to get into the kind of big big trouble or trouble but yet you still can misbehave pretty easy pretty easily <laughs> i i would think it would be the op opposite it's the opposite for us us country boys when we come to oahu Plenty of guys can't handle because there there's too many bars, too many clubs. You know, they they end up yeah. going out too much over the weekends. I keep forgetting you went to Hilo. What's your yeah. favorite thing that you miss about Hilo? Well, what do you miss about Hilo? I mean, it's a I lot different. The, I miss the sense of like culture. I I feel like that's really where I learned, like. That's really where I learned the importance of relationships and how much like Hilo people value that, right? And mm. um, even though I was an outsider, 
um, like from Honolulu, uh, I got plugged into a church immediately. But this one family that kind of adopted me, they they had no clue who I was, but they invited me over like every Sunday for dinner. Um, they let me borrow their car oh, whenever nice. I needed to, you know, it's just like super simple things like that. But it was like the sense of family and it was you're here. We want to take care of you. That's how we do in Hilo. Um, and I kind of miss that. Uh, it's not like that, I think, in Honolulu for the most part, um, or it would take a really long time to integrate like that um, yeah. here. Yeah. I think that's Hilo still kind of that way. Um, it's a lot bigger now, I think, because now you're, you have such a big population out in KL and Pohoa. So in general, Hilo feels a lot bigger than when we were there, but I think it's still got a lot of that small townish kind of mentality let me guess yeah. was it kino ole baptist yes <laughs> yeah how did you know oh because it's baptist yeah oh yeah. yeah that that but like that's like pretty close to the schools so i'm figuring if you were in Hilo, you probably weren't like venturing too far away from where wherever Uchida was. Well, you know, like um, the year that I went, so 97, I think that was like one of the first years like Walmart had just opened up. Uh -huh. And so my roommate and I, we were, my roommate was from Alaska. And um, so she and I used to walk from the dorms to Walmart like maybe three times a week and that's kind of far that's kind of like, far when I think about it now I'm like oh I can't believe we used to walk that but it's at least um, two miles maybe three yeah I mean we had like nothing else to do but um, <laughs> we did that a lot and we just like hang out in Walmart and cruise and then walk back so you were there 97 yeah 97 98 97 98 yeah. Oh, so you were there right after. Shoots, I thought you were like way, way younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> I had just left not too long before you got there. Oh, yeah. I mean, Walmart was where we would hang out. I think it opened like my junior or my senior year. So it was. So what year was that? 90, I graduated in 96. Yeah, see, so it was like, yeah, it had just opened up. Yeah, it was like it pretty brand new. Opened. And like at the time, it was open 24 hours when they first opened. I think now they have like, I think they're open till like 12 or something. But that's where we used to go hang out. <laughs> like if there was nothing to do, we'd be like, ah, let's go cruise around Walmart and we'd like not buy anything and not cause trouble. It was just someplace that yeah, was open that we could go to. You know, I applied for a job too at KTA and I never got it. So Toby Taniguchi, if you're listening, like your family did not hire me. And <laughs> that makes me really upset. But like, hey, I really wanted to work at KTA. It's a highly sought after job. It's a competitive place to work, man. <laughs> yeah, what can I say? You wasn't local enough. That's why for KTA, they probably heard you uh, speak and was like, oh, where's this girl from? <laughs> LA. She's from Los Angeles. 
<laughs> you couldn't communicate with the Hilo people, guarantee. Yeah, they didn't understand me, apparently. <laughs> Especially at KTA, that's like all locals, right? You would have, they would have been, they would have had you um, pegged for a, for a townie right from the start. Yeah, I, I never worked at KTA, but um, yeah, a bunch of my friends, everybody kind of worked there. I mean, as far as I knew, but yeah Hilo's stories are always the best I mean would you ever I mean I know you wouldn't because your 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 husband's here your work is here but would you ever consider moving to Hilo uh, <laughs> I don't think so <laughs> that's fair it's not for everybody <laughs> yeah you know I not because I didn't I wouldn't want to I don't think I would be like I don't think I would fit in really well. You don't? I think you'd be okay. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe a retirement place. I yeah. don't know. We'll see. You know, with this whole pandemic, it really made it clear to me that I could live at home. Because I think I I was always scared of missing some of the social aspect of being on Oahu. You know, like, you know, going out, the restaurants and, you know, people, the activities, you know, a lot of networking events, that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. right? You get more opportunities. But now that it's been, what, six months of, like, just being locked in my apartment, basically, I'm like, I'm totally fine with it. I was like, I could move back tomorrow. I'd be, it'd be fine. Um, but yeah, yeah. he was a good place. I mean... I think that when small I saw that you thing. went up there, when I saw that you went up there, I was like, oh my gosh, why would you come back? To where? You know, to, to Honolulu. Here. Oh. When you had gone up there recently. And then oh. I was like, oh, I would have stayed up there as long as I could. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, it's home, right? So it'll always be open for me. Like, I mean, I can always go back. I can go back tomorrow. You know, it, it can be as easy as that. I think the thing is, in my heart of hearts, I know if I move back, that's it. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, and am I ready to make that call? I think if I went back, because my all of my ohana is there, right? So, you know, my my nephew, my niece like everybody's there my parents are there so i think if i moved home that's it i'm i'm hammering down the the stakes i'm i'm laying my concrete foundation and i'm home so that's i think that's the the overall fear i gotta get past if i if i do want to move back mm. um i i think i want to make sure i'm completely done with oahu <laughs> <laughs> before i don't want to move back and be like shit i I wish i took this job or i, I wish i did this i wish i yeah. had that opportunity i want to be sure like okay oahu is 100 percent done for me that chapter is closed because i know if i move home i'm i'm that's it that's the last chapter as far as where i live but yeah no hilo is a special place it is a special place. Where yeah. was your favorite place to go grind when you were there? Oh. Um. 
Because Hilo has good eats, like local yeah, style. You know, stuff. I, I don't really remember eating out a lot. <laughs> Too busy at Kapo, that's why. You just had <laughs> you just had all the boys cooking out for you, all all the boys barbecuing for you guys. That's probably what it was. We did. We did used to barbecue a lot. Yeah, yeah that's for no. sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really remember eating out a lot, but like, um, oh, there is this one burger place. I don't know if I think it's still there. It was like, um, it was in downtown. It kind of looked like a varsity, had like a varsity feel, like sports feel. Oh, okay. Cronies? Cronies? Cro yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. They're still there. Um, and the burgers are still good. They're a lot. Oh, yeah. To go party. Wait, but you were underage. Hey, wait a minute. You're not supposed to be going in there. <laughs> well, no, it's a restaurant. It's a bar and grill. Yeah, it's a restaurant. Yeah, yeah. So you could be It's like there. a sports bar, right? Sort yeah. of. Yeah. I guarantee we probably saw each other then if you were there. Because, well, I'm, well, although I'm guessing you came back here to Oahu for winter break and summer and all that stuff, right? Yeah, I had to. My parents made me. Yeah. Like, okay, maybe we didn't because I would have only been home for on winter break or for um, summer. So, yeah. I mean, and Cody's I was only there for a year or two. So, yeah. Was, oh, so you went there freshman year and then you finished that Manoa. I went to, um, so after UH, um, I was on probation because I didn't go to class. <laughs> so I went to KCC. Oh, so I was at KCC for three years. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and then I transferred to UH. Oh, okay. I was on the six year plan. Hey, it's fine. It was all in state. <laughs> And back in that time, it was relatively affordable. I don't even know right. how much college is now. I'm sure it's not that cheap, but <laughs> yeah. No, Hilo Hilo has that effect where you either, if you live there anyway, you either love it or you don't. But if you do love it, I mean, it's easy to get into that um, lifestyle of slower pace. Um, you don't go out to restaurants. You're going to go to somebody's garage or patio, and you're gonna bring some poopoos or some steak and cook out, and that's that's how you hang out. Versus like going out to fancy exactly. restaurants. I mean, there are nice restaurants. Yeah, that's what I remember. Like just like a lot of my friends too were like um, farmers. Like they owned their families own um, Anthurium farms. Yeah in like Papaiko and Pahoa. Mm -hmm. So we used to go all the time. Like I used to go and help cut flowers and then the their family would, you know, like torch a goat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you and eat the goat. Like, yeah, we, we would be like eating all this like Filipino food. Oh, and nice. So like, I, I don't remember eating out a lot. Yeah. yeah. Just at, at homes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm guessing you put on weight too, because that that has that Hilo has that effect on me. When I go home, I end up oh, putting totally. on weight. Yeah, like, I gained about like thirty pounds. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I that's what I'm scared of too. If I move home, like 
fuck, I'm going to put on so much weight. Because <laughs> it's too easy. It's like, well, I mean, I, I, I just got to get disciplined. Like, stay disciplined, I guess. But uh, anyway, yeah. we're, we're past the hour. I try to keep oh, it to gosh. an hour. But um, no, I appreciate you coming on. I, I know there's a lot more we can talk about nonprofit, but, um, you know, I know, well, I, and just to put it on record, I do appreciate you. You're also helping me during my day job, and I do appreciate all of the help. I think it's um, super helpful. So if there are nonprofits listening and you need help, yeah, by 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 all means, please well, I don't know. Are you looking for more work? You're probably always looking for more work, right? No, I'm not really looking for work, but I am here to like support, you know, nonprofit leaders as much as I can. So like, yeah, I'm always open. If someone wants to talk story, I'm happy to talk story with them and provide, you know, coaching and that kind of thing. So, Perfect. but thanks for having me on. Yeah, right on. Well, thanks for coming on and uh, take care. We'll talk to you soon. I got to talk to you soon right. anyway. Thank you. Okay, bye.